Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is another exciting edition of the Remnant Podcast, and it is also the one-year anniversary of this, uh, I consider, still-fledgling work-in-progress podcast. This week's episode, um, or today's episode, because we might do another one this week, I know Jack doesn't know that yet, is sponsored by Donors Trust and by Zip Recruiter. More about both of those in a little bit. Um, and also some other uh, odds and ends in the various and sundry section at the end of this conversation. But let's get started right now. And uh, this week or today, we actually have two guests, which is something of a rarity around here. We have Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianov. Got, I got it close enough? Pretty good, yeah. yeah okay. Um, and they're the authors of The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Um, now, if you're a um, remotely engaged person, you've probably heard some of this. You might have read the, Atlant- the original Atlantic article that started this. And so we're going to, we're kind of going to skip ahead from some of the normal introductory stuff. But by all means, we'll put a bunch of other links in the, in the show notes where you can get the full straight into your veins version of their thesis, <laughs> um, including at their own website, which is thecoddling.com. The coddling. The coddling. The coddling. Okay. So um, that said, why don't you in broad brushstrokes start where you think makes the most sense to lay out the thesis? And whoever goes first, just say who you are. Oh, sure. Uh, my name is Greg Lukianoff, um, and uh, I'm going to start just by saying that the origins of the book go back uh, really to 2013, 2014. Um, I'd been working on campuses defending free speech and academic freedom as the head of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education since about 2001, which was a year after I graduated from law school. And I knew John at that point for about, I think, close to a year. And seemingly overnight in 2013, 2014, we saw this, these, these trends emerge um, that were not anything like I'd seen. They were more like stereotypes people had of what, what campus was like, you know, maybe 20 years ago um, during the first great age of PC. And um, whereas for all of my career, the students had actually been the best people for free speech on campus. And then suddenly you were having students demanding disinvitations at a, at a higher rate. You were having trigger warnings pop up, things I hadn't heard of previ- prior to that year, micro demands for microaggression policies, and all this stuff that um, uh, it really seemed to happen almost overnight. Um, and I talked to John about it um, when we, when we uh, sat down for Indian food. Uh, some, somewhere in Greenwich Village, just about how I've been kind of developing this theory for a little while that it's as if we're teaching a generation the habits of anxious and depressed people, uh, mm-hmm. according to cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I, you know, it's something I've been thinking about for a while, and I thought the administrators were kind of modeling that behavior, but the students didn't really seem to be buying it until 2013, 2014. Uh, to my uh, delight and surprise, John really liked the idea, and we decided to work together on the original article. Great. And this is John Haidt. I'm a social psychologist. I'm a professor at New York University in the business school. Um, And when Greg uh, told me this idea, it explained the bizarre things that I was beginning to see a little bit at NYU and also what I was reading about. Looking back on this, I actually just realized the first articles about all this stuff were in left-leaning outlets. It was actually the New York Times used to cover this a lot. The New New Republic Republic was the first one on trigger warnings. Mm -hmm. So this was really an issue within the academic world. And so it was covered by uh, you know, by left-leaning um, um, magazines and outlets. Unfortunately, now it's become part of the culture war, and now there's a tendency on the on the right to want to exaggerate things and say, you know, that there's a you know there's a moral panic. Well, to have a moral panic that students have lost their minds, uh, and on the left to deny it and say, no, there's nothing going on. Look at look at data from 20 years ago from millennials. There's no change. <laughs> right. That's what they say. Um, 
And so I think the clearest way to say what's what's happening, we've learned a lot about it since we wrote that first article. Um, well, first we should say, after we published the article in August oh, of 2015... Well, then we solved that, it. Yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> As articles always do. I've solved so many problems. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, this pro- the, you know, the, the problem then completely blew up. I mean, like, so hardly worse. anyone had heard about it until... Halloween 2015, <laughs> right. when there was the possibility that someone might wear a bad costume. I don't think anyone actually did, at least not at Yale. But um, there was an enormous blow up, and then there there were um, uh, protests and demands for reforms all over the country. I'd been writing about the war on Halloween for a good five years at that point. So w- when Erica Kurstakis put out her original email, like she was commenting from from something that we saw way back in Cornell at 20, in 2010, where believe it or not. Uh, the police, like the head of police at Cornell, actually said students um, m- might be uh, stopped and asked to disrobe if they're wearing physical <laughs> costumes. Like that's really freaky to, yeah. to, to say that wow. without a sense wow. of like disgusting irony. Wow. Um, so, but it's important to note here that, of course, you know there are political objections to Halloween costumes, but that's not what was new. So, what, what Greg really noticed was that for the first time, students were saying they were not saying this is outrageous, this is racist, this is terrible, this is insensitive. They were saying this is dangerous, this is damaging, this is traumatizing, uh, and not just about Halloween costumes, but about visiting speakers, about books, um, and so this new lens of interpreting things through, are they safe or dangerous? This mm. is a terrible way for college students to think. So our book, so anyway, I joined because I'm the, the social psychologist here, and Greg had this great psychological idea. And so we teamed up to write the article. Since the article came out, we've, and then things got so much worse, we've now dug into it. And the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, has about three chapters on child rearing. Um, we changed the way we raise kids. We've turned them into more anxious Right. Uh, people unable to deal as well with independence. So there's all kinds of threads that come together until, boom, we get this explosion in 2015. Yep. So it's funny. I mean, part of your thesis, and I'll, you can explain it, uh, but is it's sort of metaphorical and also kind of literal is the hygiene hygiene hypothesis, mm-hmm. right? And it, what's, what's one of the things I find sort of interesting about that is <clears throat> I've been writing for 10 years now about how sort of Western civilization or American culture has an autoimmune disease mm-hmm. where we are attacking right. our attacking healthiest, our own. Yeah. Our healthiest right. organs as, as if yeah. they're invaders rather than the things that keep Capitalism, us alive. Capitalism, democracy, freedom. Right. Freedom of speech. Yeah, freedom of speech. Right. So why don't you explain quickly what the hygiene, hygiene hypothesis is? Sure, I'll, I'll take that. The, key, the, the most important single idea in the book is probably the idea of anti-fragility, right. which is a, a one that Nassim Taleb uh, popularized. He made up the word because English doesn't have such a word. Uh, and the key idea is that there are certain systems that absolutely require that they be stressed, dropped, kicked, broken. Now, here I'm being metaphorical. We don't sure. need to stress, drop, and kick our kids. <laughs> but they do need to go out and sometimes get lost and then find their way back and ask a stranger for help. They do need to experience failure without someone sweeping in. Um, they need so, to adjudicate interpersonal relations without a third party Absolutely. authority figure that's right getting it that's the it. most important one so just as the the immune system is damaged if you if you keep your kids if you don't let them touch dirt or eat dirt ever if you keep everything clean you're not helping them you're actually damaging the development in the same way if you don't let them out to experience normal social interactions uh, you're damaging their psychological development now here I actually want to share something very exciting that I'm just I'm just beginning this is like a new thing I wish we'd known this before when we were in the book um, um, there's there's this interesting uh, interesting line of work on how human beings have this strange developmental process where our, our children grow and grow and grow, and then they slow down growing around age seven or eight. And there's a slow period of growth until around 12 or something like that. And then we hit puberty and we speed up. 
No other animal does this. Chimpanzees don't do it. Why would you? Why wouldn't you just grow until reproductive age? And the idea is that humans have this this apprenticeship period for cultural learning. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't just rush to puberty. We have to slow down. Now we're ready to go out into the world. Age eight is when street kids start all over the world. This is when kids can be out in the wild and steal food and run from the police and, and actually survive. Um, And what I've been doing as I go around the country speaking about the book is I ask people in the audience, okay, people over 40, how old were you when you were let out? Mm -hmm. How old were you when you could walk a few blocks Mm -hmm. to a store or or to go see a friend and just call it out? And it's always six, seven, or eight. Everybody says six, seven, or eight. And then I say, now just people under 25, when is it? And it's 12 to 14. There's an occasional 10. But it's almost all 12 to 14. In other words, what we've done is we've taken this absolutely, well, we believe it's a crucial period. in which It's the time that evolution sort of gave us to go out from the home and learn how the world works, look what people are doing, find your way around, develop some independence. And we, we, we've taken that period and we've said, nope, you're not going to get it. We're going to mm-hmm. wait until it's too late. Right. And then we're going to let you out. Yeah. And as a result, when they come to college, they're literally many of them. Again, many are f- most are fine, but many more are literally unable to deal with the independence as well as kids right. used to twenty years earlier. Let's just stipulate up front that we're speaking in broad generalizations and oh, exceptions absolutely. to all the in general. Right. We're speaking okay. broad generalizations. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so I want I want to ask something about that. So I, I always got excited about the idea of neoteny. Uh, I, don't, mm-hmm. I don't say it out loud. You know, the idea that human beings have a sort of longer childlike phase than other other primates. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, and I always like the connection between that and the whole sort of Buddhist concept of the Garuda, the the, the, the playful, whimsical mm. animal. And it, it, is it? <clears throat> am I understanding the acne correctly? Or well, we do have well. well so humans do have. Uh, we're the, one of the only species that's really playful in adulthood. Mm-hmm. And actually, dogs are are similar. We we sort of did the same thing to dogs. I mean, dogs evolved from wolves in part by extending uh, behavior patterns from childhood, puppyhood mm-hmm. into adulthood. Puppyhood. So yeah, and that's, you know, we, we are we are playful and, and play is something we do to learn more complex social behaviors and social relationships. Mm-hmm. So it's funny, um, this is a point that Daniel Borston made years ago. Uh, I love Daniel Borston. Um, where he pointed out that one of the, you know, and so on my little intellectual journey these days, I'm more open to the idea that capitalism creates more problems than we're than people on the right are willing to mm-hmm. understand. Doesn't mean I like the socialist <laughs> cures for them, but you know, I, I've become more of a it's fan. Not perfect. Of, it's not perfect, and I've become more uh, in writing my book. I became much more of a fan of Schumpeter, who thought capitalism mm-hmm. had within it the seeds of its own destruction because what it would do to institutions, starting with the family, that were upstream of capitalism that made mm-hmm. capitalism possible and. But Borson has this point where he says that basically, I can't remember the time frame, call it late 19th century, probably more like early 20th, where we invented this new category of childhood, of of sort of the age frame that you're talking about, where it was, you know, the kids didn't go, once they were physically able straight to work, they, uh, uh, where that kids, you know, for a long time, kids, there was no such thing as kids fashion. For example, except among aristocrats, right? Right. Um, the Dauphin had his own line of clothing, but other than that, right? And it's interesting to me about how that's one of these things that, because of our wealth, Americans have figured out how to do a long time ago. Was and so you created youth culture, which really wasn't a thing until fairly recently in human history, right? I mean, youth culture, as you know, from Rebel Without a Cause on down, mm. is something that that the problem with it is is that at least it used to be a temporary thing, right? Mm-hmm. And now we sort of teach that it's like cool in perpetuity all our lives and you have, you know, middle-aged dudes still acting as if they're they're teenagers. Anyway, that, that gets us 
a little far field, but um, it is funny. In my own experience, when I was growing up, my mom would send me to the local head shop when I was seven <laughs> to buy her cigarettes. <laughs> and the one time that some poor Indian or Pakistani lady at this head shop refused to sell me cigarettes, my mom came downstairs in her bathrobe and tore this poor woman a new one saying, this is my son. He can buy me cigarettes anytime he wants. And from henceforth, but like I grew up, I worry about this terribly with my daughter is that mm-hmm. I, partly because where I'm living in DC, I'm basically raising her in the 1950s. Uh-huh. There's so little commerce. There's so little opportunity for her to just wander outside of the house yeah. and have interpersonal, strange, <clears throat> you know, uh, interactions with people. And I grew, you know, I grew up in the 1970s where I was mugged a half dozen times before I was 15. Yeah. And, and I worry about what it's doing in my daughter and I worry about what it's doing in all the kids that she knows, but I, I also don't know how to combat it. She's now 15, so. Be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> no, the, sca- the scariest chapter in our book is chapter seven where we go into the mental health stats. Oh, okay. And so, you know, reports of depression and anxiety are way up for teenagers, especially for girls. Yeah. Um, and while some say, including a psychiatrist in the New York Times a couple weeks ago, oh, it's just self-report. They're more comfortable saying it. There's nothing real. Don't worry, parents. Uh, smartphones are not rotting your kids brains the the data on on it, hospital admissions for self-harm yeah. um, tell the same story um, as the depression data and the data for suicide do too so the most succinct stat i can give you is that if you take the first 10 years of this century the you know, 20, 2000 to 2009 or 2010 take the average rate per hundred thousand of adolescent suicide and compare it to the last couple of years the boys suicide rate is up 25 percent which is a very big increase yeah. the girls suicide rate is up 70 percent seven zero and this is over on top of a long-term decline in teen suicide. Um, they've right? moved. Um, well, yes, they've, the boys' rate has moved around quite a lot, but uh-huh. it is now. It is now. It's not actually at its highest ever because there was back when. I, you know, my my belief is that lead poisoning messed with the whole generation's brains, and boys uh-huh. were very criminal. So the boys' rate is not up to the highest level ever, but it is back up close. It's it's been rising sharply. The girls' rate is at the highest level ever ever yeah. recorded um, by far. So something is going on with girls. We can talk about that, and social media is is, is pointed to as yeah. as the main one. And, and I would like to say the fact that you got mugged a lot of times is not something we want to repeat. <laughs> and one thing that we really tried to – and it was interesting researching the, um, uh, the the chapter on paranoid parenting because, of course, we know that that it's much safer than it was when I was a kid in every, <clears throat> every possible way from um, homicide, theft to even accidents. Right. Um, but one thing that – in sort of lining things up, we learned a lot of interesting stuff and at least – for people like pe- people who are my age and people who are your age and John's age, it was a pretty safe bet that things were, were going to get a little more dangerous each year, at least in terms of the homicide rate, sure. until about 1991, 93, uh, right. in, in that range, depending on what city you lived in. And um, so I'm, we're trying to like understand how you could actually have a generation uh, you know, raised in possibly the safest times ever, po- possibly at least come in thinking that it's much more dangerous than it actually is. Yeah. Now we often get the counter argument that oh, but you know, it's life is so much harder for kids these days, and things are so dangerous, and all mm-hmm. the you know, harassment. Um, you know, physically, it's incredibly safe. The accident rates are down. The yep. crime rates are down. Um, a lot of it comes down. They, they do talk about school shootings. Now I should just point out the school shootings when we wrote the book and when these things began, school shootings were not rising. Mm-hmm. Um, although in the last year or two, now now they are. So th- I understand fear of school shootings in the last year or two yeah. could be adding to the anxiety. But you know, I always want to say back to them. 
okay, when we were growing up, I mean, you actually had to fear being mugged. I mean, there was real violence and there was nuclear war. I mean, yeah, we really, right. I thought a lot about nuclear war when I was a kid. Me yeah. too. So, I, you know, I really don't buy the argument that it's, that things are more dangerous today. What clearly has happened is the more you go into a virtual world, the more you encounter hate speech and hostile words. And one of the things Greg and I are finding is that as the young generation seems to think that words are violence, well, they can say things are more violent because they see bad words on the internet. Mm -hmm. And there are two points that um, I I didn't make it to the final draft, but I do always like to nod at them when I can, is I do get the the, the fear of how much debt you have to go into in order to, um, uh, how much debt you have to go into in order to go to college and the sense that kind of the middle class is hollowing out. So you got to make it to the life raft of the fancy schools. And I I have some sympathy for that. But at the same time, it's not to to pretend as if uh, we didn't have crazy anxieties about things like nuclear war actually being being physically unsafe when we were kids. Yeah. Well, and also the argument that, of course, kids are more anxious today because of debt. Mm-hmm. Well, why then are they protesting Halloween costumes and dining hall food, right. not, not tuition rates and debt? Right. And they were protesting um, d- debt in around 2011, 2012, which is really, ah, which is okay. really interesting. There, there was a spate of protests um, that, you know, I was very optimistic about, particularly in the California system, protesting the, um, uh, the increases in California tuition. So to change gears slightly. And uh, this is a little unfair to Greg because it's, it's – I'm a big fan of The Righteous Mind, one of uh, John's previous books. Um, I'm on this uh, – one, one of my sort of daydream kicks these days is to think about things as they exist today mm-hmm. that would be recognizable to a smart, informed sort of observer of human society 500 years ago, uh-huh. right? And because as a conservative, I, I – I, I think that that there is this natural tendency of human nature to want to um, get right with the world and make the world seem understandable to our sort of inner homunculus of human nature, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the examples I always use is like North Korea. We talk about North Korea still to this day as this Marxist, Stalinist police state. It's nothing of the sort. They they scrubbed all of their public literature of references to Marx and Mm -hmm. to Stalin all that a long time ago. It is... A, it's much closer to Plato's Republic. It is a, mm. it is, it is not the, it is a, it is a monarchy. It is a divine right of Kim's in effect, right? And they actually have, if you read Nick Eberstadt's stuff on this, it's fascinating. They have whole gradations of serfs and peasants that if you were born into a certain class, it's almost impossible to be promoted out of it based upon your descendants from some, uh, from three or four generations ago. If your great grandfather collaborated with the, the Japanese, then you carry that stain like the mark of Cain for all time. Wow. And you could be cast down to one of the lower castes, but very difficult to be lifted up, right? And so when I look at, and when I was listening to the book um, and your interview with, um, is it Psychology Today? You did a podcast for the book with some science podcast. And it seems to me that so much of this stuff is, you know, we're changing the, the lingo and the shibboleths, but it really is sort of like a... Um, a religious movement. Oh, it has the oh, form sure. and yeah, yeah. the yeah. texture of a religious movement. We have heretics, mm-hmm. right? We anathematize blasphemy people. Laws. That's huge amounts of thing. blasphemy, right? We even have sumptuary laws, which are in the in medieval Europe, sumptuary laws like only the king could wear purple, mm-hmm. and only certain people yeah. could wear this or wear that. We have this sort of idea that uh, with cultural appropriation, that certain people can't wear certain clothing or right. do their hair in a certain way. And so part of my rebellion against intellectual history is to say maybe some of this stuff isn't about intellectual history so much as it is about the sort of reassertion of human nature 
when the institutions that are supposed to contain and channel it in a proper way are no longer doing their job. Perfect. I, I love the way you're, you're talking about this. That's exactly the way that I think. I'm a social psychologist who loves evolutionary thinking and anthropology. And so there are these deep patterns of, of cognition and social relationships. And I, I, I haven't read your book. I've read about uh, Suicide of the West. But, the important um, thing is you buy it. The, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I very much share the idea that human nature is tribal, uh, ba- designed for small-scale religions. We dance around campfires. Occasionally, we sacrifice humans. Right. That's And the long success of, of, of liberal institutions of, of, of Western history is to find ways to, to, to suppress that, to get us to live in different ways, especially a large-scale, secular, multi-ethnic democracy is like, it should never fly. This should right. never work. Obviously, it's unnatural. It's completely it's literally unnatural. unnatural. That's, right. That's right. Now, it can work, we, but, but I think that the, the margin for error is very, very small. And the way that I think about it is, um, the, so the, the big insight for me when I was writing The Righteous Mind, because as you know, as you know I, I started writing the book to help the Democrats win. I was always on the left, and I, and I couldn't stand it after 2000 and then 2004. The Democrats had no idea how to talk about morality in the United States. So I started doing work on trying to understand conservatives and libertarians and watching Fox News and things like that. And I sub- actually right, subscribed to National Review and was actually reading some of your articles. It was <laughs> such a great writer. It was so much fun to read you. It really just makes the ideas much more accessible. But one of the great ideas that I learned is from Burke. I'd never read Burke. Mm-hmm. Um, but just recognizing that, that um, um, ideas get passed down through time. And there are lots and lots of bad ideas. But they tend not to be passed down. Mm-hmm. And so this is the theme of my first book, The Happiness Hypothesis. The, the ancients were terrible at, at physics and chemistry, but they were great psychologists because we only get their best ideas. <laughs> so, so conservatives are very wise to the idea that we can't just invent a way of living ourselves freed from all past. We, we really benefit from getting the best lessons from the past. And what I'm realizing as I, as I, as I learn more about youth, cult, youth culture, back to your point about youth culture, I'm guessing that there has never in human history been a generation as cut off mm-hmm. from, from communicating or getting the ideas of people over 40 in history mm-hmm. because social media is all about communicating with with others of your sort of horizontally, not horizontally, really. exactly. Yeah. And so, if you take this long, several hundred year advance of Western history, and then you have a generation that's com- that's only that's mostly communicating horizontally, suddenly you're going to lose all of those restraining devices, and you're going to get the reemergence of what's already in people's minds these right. these basic ancient forms of morality, including the sort of the pre biblical morality of you inherit the sins of your ancestors, yeah. right. Right. And, and it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people fixate on the title of the book and we always explain it was like the 12th title that we, we ran by the publisher and ultimately the one they went with. Welcome to my world, yeah. But um, the, clo- the Closing of the American Mind um, by Alan Bloom is one that people bring up a lot. And we're like, listen, we just like the formula of it. It, it, it has very, bears very little resemblance to that book. But I did go back and reread it a couple times, you know, expecting some questions from it. And what's interesting about it is that it so much focuses on moral relativism. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree yeah. with your, your with your co- uh, with. Uh, um, someone else from Manaro, David French, and I've been saying this for years, the modern uh, movement on campus is not at all relativist. It right. is yeah. very much moral absolutism. Yeah. And in the, writing the book, I, 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 I don't remember, know if you remember this, but at one point I was like, so are you saying that this is um, kind of an, an analogous to sort of the religious instinct or this is the re- religious instinct? It is the religious instinct, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> And so, I mean, so uh, this is probably better for Greg just to be fair about this. I, I never do this with two people. So... Um, <laughs> Um, well, it's kind of like a devil's triangle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're we're going to get to some of that. I, um, I'm apparently supposed to know all these terms because I went to Catholic school in the 80s, and I'm kind of like I don't know what boffing or devil's triangle mean. I'm sorry, boofing, Greg. Boof. Boof. Is that the way you pronounce it? Um, oh, goodness. 
We'll get back unless, to that unless in a minute. An umlaut. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, since we've lost control of this, let me. We'll, we'll hear from our first uh, first sponsor today, who is uh, uh, Donors Trust. Is charitable giving important to you? Do you care about the bedrock American principles of limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise? If so, then Donors Trust can help you simplify your giving and take it to the next level. Consider if you've ever experienced any of these situations. Perhaps you've been fortunate enough to receive an unexpected inheritance or sell a company, something where you both want to reduce your tax burden and support some charities. Or perhaps you found yourself in late December opening your checkbook to write your year-end contributions to the same set of groups as always, but wish it were simpler and that you had more time to think strategically. Or maybe you're working on your estate plan and wondering if your children will follow through with your bequest gifts to conservative nonprofit groups. If any of these situations sound familiar, take a closer look at Donors Trust. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds, philanthropic advice, and legacy protection. The favorable tax benefits, additional privacy, and ease of use make donor-advised funds the fastest-growing charitable tool in the country. And opening a fund with Donors Trust means you can be confident your charitable dollars won't go to support causes you don't like. Donors Trust is the Community Foundation for Liberty, so they share your commitment to limited government and free enterprise. With Donors Trust, you'll be able to easily support the nonprofit groups you care about most, from think tanks to your church or synagogue or to the countless charities using private dollars to solve public problems. A fund is easy to start and more accessible than many people realize. Find out how a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust can benefit you by visiting DonorsTrust.org slash dingo to receive your free six reasons to use a donor-advised fund guide. Remnant listeners will also receive a special bonus, two additional ebooks to help you identify principled, driven charities that deserve your support. Again, visit DonorsTrust.org slash dingo right now to get your free guide on using a donor-advised fund with Donors Trust. Take your charitable giving to the next level by visiting DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo. Okay, so here's a question about the sort of staying on the theme sort of of this religious mm-hmm. sort of um, approach. Because this is something that um, just on the religious thing, um, as a conservative, you know, the philosopher Eric Vergelin argued that Nazism, communism, these were all what he called Gnostic or political religions, right? Mm, These are secular religions that take on the form and function. They promise a heaven on earth. They do all these sorts of things, right? And which is why I think that almost all all attempts to sort of recreate an alternative to traditional religion, which has within it all sorts of sort of Hayekian safeguards that we can't fully appreciate, Uh protect it from going off the rails less. It can still go off the rails, right? But there are internal checks to it. One of the things I we find on college campuses is so the safe space thing, right? Mm. I have no problem with the idea of there being. I shouldn't say no problem. I have no problem. I have few problems with the idea of there being some safe spaces. My mm. problem with the argument about safe spaces is that's not what they mean. Yeah. Jack and I once went looked through, I think it was the Yale course catalog and and catalog in general, and found that there are literally scores of his. Hispanic associations, black students associations, mm-hmm. foreign students associations. These is, those are all presumably safe spaces right. where people of a ad- certain identity can be unchallenged by the heteronormative, patriarchal, whatever norms outside. 
what people mean by safe spaces is a totalizing thing that there okay. should be no unsafe spaces, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and that attitude on campuses seems to me a fundamentally religious thing. It's about, it's, it, because we're now analogous to saying that words are violence, <clears throat> which is a confusion of abstract with physical. Mm -hmm. We are now also saying that words can be unclean, right? Yeah. Or oh, uh, again, right? Uh, again, <laughs> right? Yeah. And um, uh, I've lost my train of thought about where I was going with this question. Well, but. I, I can address the safe yeah. spaces issue. Um, I'm actually surprised at your confidence that you know what a safe space is because I've been doing this on campus for a really long time. And as best I can tell, there are at least seven competing definitions sure. of what a safe space actually means. Now, and like you That's said- That's far fewer than the number of definitions of social justice that I have <laughs> yeah, tried to figure out. Exactly. Uh, but there, there is the associational one, which isn't particularly problematic, which is that you can have a group of people who um, are, have, you have some affinity for or look similar to you. Meanwhile, people really revolted when University of Chicago said we don't provide safe spaces, and that's the way it right. got quoted. But actually, what they said is we don't provide intellectual safe spaces, which right. is a much more right. defensible. That's right. The classroom should never be a safe space. Right. No, I agree with that entirely. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we've also seen safe spaces used um, to say basically, I, I don't want you know, like at Silliman, which was supposed to be an educational dorm, that this is my safe space. We don't want, and I was actually there at the time. We don't want, I guess, people like me coming and talking about free speech, which isn't consistent with what the dorm was supposed to be. But probably the most fanciful one I heard was when I did. Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson, mm -hmm. uh, and he said, "I want I, I, my my daughter th says she, she was at Harvard says she knows what a, a, a safe space is, and it's the uh, it's the place that when you're triggered, you get taken to the safe space so you can like recover." And I'm like, "This was an entirely new one where it was kind yeah. of an emergency uh, emergency room kind of idea, or a nunnery, or a nunnery." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. um, all right, so but both of you make the case, and I, I understand it's not a hard absolutist case, but you you make the case that. These, the safe space stuff, the trigger warnings emerged out of nowhere in 2013, right? Not quite. Um, we, they, they seemed to emerge they, out they, of they nowhere. Okay. The roots go. The roots go. Yeah, back we, to we know microaggressions and 90s. from the 70s. Um, trigger warnings yeah. were. I mean, the, the prehistory of trigger warnings. I actually write about in a book called um, uh, Freedom from Speech, uh -huh. where, where I talk about how we've already seen this movie before. Actually, the the the, the New Republic article on trigger warnings was totally fascinating. But it talked about um, the history of trigger warnings as they, as they exist on the internet and how they very quickly went from something that you know a couple sites were using to something where there was a kind of laughable list of 50 sure. items that you were supposed to provide trigger warnings for. And, the, and these were already the butt of jokes and even in feminist circles by 2012. So when people talk about how do we think this is going to pan out, well, we actually have an example of, of, of how it is. And, you know, they were doing trigger warnings in the um, as best I can tell, e even in the 90s, um, but they didn't become prominent. Um, and I, like I said, I hadn't heard of them until about 2013. Yeah. So the, the case I've been making for a very long time is that political correctness mm -hmm whether it's the term, which traces back to sort of the early 90s, but has a pre-90s sort of Stalinist thing yep. yeah. for it, right? It goes back to the 30s. That has existed for a very long time. Sure. If you look at the hysteria of uh, during World War I about, you know, uh, you know, sort of progressive nationalists who were any hint of lack of, of patriotism mm -hmm. elicited all sorts yeah. of sort of witch hunts and whatnot, yeah. Um and of course, the comic book crisis of the early 1950s. That's right. I actually own Spider-Man number 98. Uh, <gasps> really? Yeah, where they didn't have the comic yeah. code. Um, <laughs> but it seems to me, I mean, isn't part of your argument, at least that's what I always took away from it when I talk about this on campuses, is that the, this is the, to paraphrase Barack Obama, 
these these are the ones they've been waiting for, right? Mm-hmm. That the arguments about political correctness uh-huh. and the the internal logic and mechanics of it have been there for a long time. They just couldn't sell it to a mass market until yep. these kids came along. Well, yeah, but I think if you look at it, look at a sort of a system in a kind of a complex equilibrium, and then you change a few parameters in a big way. Mm-hmm. And so I'll just give you a couple of the parameters that we think have changed that really br- brought it to a head in 2015. So one is you get the political purification of the faculty. Um, so in the 20th century, universities leaned left, and we have a lot of, a lot of research on this at heterodoxacademy.org. Um, surveys in the 20th century showed that you know two to one, three to one ratios of left right. to right, which is fine. The, the key thing is not balanced. The key thing is that you have to be sure that there's someone who will raise questions, someone who will challenge uh, an ideologically based assumption. Um, and as the greatest generation retires, as they begin leaving in the 90s, by 2010, the academy overall is five to one left right. But in the core disciplines of the social sciences and humanities, it's anywhere from 10 to one to 50 to one or 40 to one mm-hmm. in some disciplines. And so when you start getting, uh, when you start getting almost imagine like a super saturated solution or a super pure solution or whatever the metaphor is. Um, so if you have a, a return of, of waves of political correctness, but now there is nobody around to speak against it. There's right. nobody to provide a leavening to say, what are you guys talking about? And to cite some historical references that they should have read. Right. So, so that's one. group think is part of it. Yeah. Exactly. So you, you get, you get group think when you don't have what you uh, uh, intellectual diversity. Right. That's what Heterodox Academy is all about, right. is viewpoint diversity or intellectual diversity. Uh, second thing that's changed um, is that in the 1990s, left and right disliked each other, but on a 100-point scale, it wasn't actually that low, according to the American National Election Survey, but it kept going up and up. It, cross-group hostility has just increased and increased since the 90s. Now, left and right really hate each other. Right. So by 2014, 2015, um, you have a politically purified institution with rising cross-partisan hostility, and then here's the key thing the big the two biggest ones of all are you get social media so that now groupthink is can you know can travel five times the speed of light or whatever mm-hmm. um, and then the final one is the arrival of kids born in 1995 and after mm-hmm. and so we call it iGen in the book but as of about last week it's clear Gen Z is going to win that's going to be the <laughs> that's going to be the label it's going to be Gen Z as, as a Gen uh, Gen Xer I don't want to stick them with that you know but, they, they yeah, come up, it basically they is like they couldn't it. come up with a name for us yeah so anyway so Gen Z, once Gen Z arrives now suddenly you have people saying Again, these are these are people a generation that was not let out until they were thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, they come to school. You know, some speaker is going to come speak on campus, and instead of saying "I hate that," they say "That's dangerous. I need protection from yeah. it." Right. All right. So I'm going to try out a theory on you. Part of the argument I make in my book is that the ro- that romanticism never went away. Yeah. That we stopped talking about the romantic era because that was about art or poetry or yep. whatever, but. Nationalism is basically a romantic phenomenon yep. yes, uh, as an ideological phenomenon, right? And it's largely a rebellion against the Enlightenment. It comes out in Germany because mm-hmm. it's not just a rebellion against abstract, cold machine thinking, but also against the imposition of Enlightenment stuff by the French. Yeah. And today we, we've, been, we've been raising kids for a couple generations now, going back to this youth culture thing, mm-hmm. that just simply says the highest source of authority – is actually within you, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I, I remember the self-esteem movement was a big precursor to this. When I was a kid, there was a commercial that ran on local New York televisions that the song went, you're the most important person in the whole wide world and you hardly even know you. Oh, and, <laughs> no, God, it, vomit. It makes me want to cut myself. And um, that, uh, but, you know, so 
today, if you and I think social media makes it so much worse because yeah. it encourages self-expression over self-discipline, right? Yeah. That the measure of somebody is how many clicks or eyeballs or followers that they have. And the way you do that is by constantly acting out even more. So the problem that we've got, you're talking about the sorting on campus um, of professors or the purification of faculties, uh, can be found in part because the institutions that once created spaces for different sets of elites with different points of view to interact, mm -hmm. sort of a Putnam point, they're eroding. And it, increasingly, it's possible to live in a world where you only know people who already agree with you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so on the partisan point, it is true that we're in the most part, one of the most partisan moments in American history. Um, but the irony is, is that the parties themselves are weaker than they've ever been. Right. And so the parties used to filter a lot of this crap. And it used to be 40 years ago, if I asked you if you were a liberal or if I asked you if you were a Republican or Democrat, I'd have to ask you a follow-up question before I knew whether you were a liberal or conservative. Right, right. That's right. not true anymore. How do, you, how do you put Humpty Dumpty back together again? Yeah. So one of the important uh, changes that's happened, and it, this is related to the rise of cross-partisan hostility, is that for the first time in our history, as far as I know, we have... Uh, a two-party sort based on psychology. Mm -hmm. So I don't know much about the early days, but you know my understanding is the parties were confederations of different interest groups. You know right. the northern shippers with the midwestern regional whatever. economic yeah. interests. Yeah, yeah. So the people on their side might have interests opposed to you, but there's no reason why you would hate them or damn them personally to hell. Right. Um, but uh, you know, there's the complicated history here. But uh, once you you know once you no longer have Southern Democrats, and some people argue with me when I say once John. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, and the South begins to leave the Democratic Party. Um, for whatever reason, we get this sort so that now all the conservatives are in the Republican Party, all the uh, liberals are in the progressives, I should say, are in the uh, Democratic Party. Um, now it, it's really a difference of lifestyle, and it's now and that's why it's now becoming so clearly a difference of population density. If you know the population density of a county, you can pretty well predict how it voted. Yep. Um, so we're in big trouble now because the opportunities to mix, the opportunities to actually meet each other are fewer and farther between in real life. Um, the internet could, I uh, know, I would say the internet could in theory make up for it, but actually interacting. But it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. It makes <laughs> it things much, much worse. Yeah. Right. Because just interacting with people doesn't necessarily make things better. If you have no shared future and if you have anonymity, it tends to make things a lot worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just want to say something about romanticism. Uh, not all of romanticism is understood in the early 19th century, um, but aspects of it, certainly the anti-rationality and the sort of quasi-mystical belief in the soul and all that kind of stuff, that's most of human history. Just the, sure. same, just the same way I talk about censorship, um, that the uh, that this argument that uh, words are violence is not a new argument. It's actually a very ancient argument. And the innovation was to say, you know, it, it, against anti-rationality, empiricism, saying right. l l let's be rational and let's actually take it a step further even test our mm -hmm. test our rationality. It's the same thing with censorship. You know, words were violence for most of human history, right. and I'll, I'll always have like a, a professor who thinks they've come up with this. It's just an arbitrary invention. I'm like, it's an invention, but it's one of the best things we've come up with. And a lot of these uh, a lot of these things that we kind of take for granted now are actually wonderful and, uh, antidotes to uh, some of our uh, uh, more troubling tribalistic, uh, anti rationalist nature, and we're treating them as if they're part of the problem. So, all right, you're a Anti-censorship champion. Yep. Right. Um, what I do. I am. Um, I have long been um, the youngest pro-censorship crank um, <laughs> out there, but rightly understood. Right. First of all, I always tell people if you're a hundred percent against censorship, most people. You may be an exception. I've had this argument with many Cato Reason Magazine types over the years. Right. Yep. 
But most people, when they say they're against all forms of censorship, mm -hmm. they mean except for the forms of censorship they prefer, right? And uh -huh. that if you're 100% against censorship, would you be in favor of kiddie porn on Saturday morning television, broadcast television? And most remotely reasonable people say no, right? right? You know, and, and so there is a role for censorship in we can come up with all sorts of hypothetical examples on a college campus you shouldn't be able in the middle of class to yell the n-word right right, right. Yeah. and so i getting this mostly from irving crystal i used to argue that and i still argue that almost all of our problems could be solved by pushing as much power down to the most local level possible uh -huh. right it would solve a lot of these institutional things it would solve a lot of the populist things because people would feel like they actually first of all have more power in their actual lives and they're not watching people make decisions for them in some far off place um, but it also would create politicians who are accountable. Mm -hmm. But it would also, I would also allow at the local level things like censorship within broad parameters. Mm -hmm. And in part because that's how you maintain the health of some institutions and good practices. I would, I would say what my problem with the way we talk about censorship in this country mm -hmm. is that we've inverted the pyramid. Mm -hmm. Historically, the argument is we need to keep these extreme, wacky, wacky dumb things free mm -hmm. in order to protect our core liberties, right? So we need to, uh, because the, the, the Constitution protects political speech. Mm -hmm. The idea that a community couldn't ban strip clubs, right? The idea that, that being a stripper is a form of political oh, speech or self-expression. But that's an argument that has been made by lots and lots of people. And the only argument for defending that stuff is to say, if we defend this stuff on the outskirts, we'll keep the core stuff free. Mm -hmm. The reality is, is that because of this romantic ethos, we celebrate the self-expression nonsense, mm -hmm. but we're constantly trying to regulate the very stuff through campaign finance reform, through all sorts of things that are actually the core liberties that our, the founding fathers had intended to keep, to keep free. Mm -hmm. You seem to be rejecting everything that's coming out of my mouth. So. Uh, pretty, pretty close, yeah. yeah um, I, I just think it just fundamentally gets a lot of things wrong. And, and, the, and the most basic mistake that people make is to think that, well, free speech people, um, they don't believe in uh, any, any limitation on speech. And, of course, that's nonsensical. The, the, uh, I've met libertarians <laughs> who embrace the nonsensical, but go on. Oh, funny. Okay. Like, I work in this field and I almost never do. Yeah. Um, the, uh, uh, so, basically, when I go to Europe and they think we're all out, completely out of our minds, uh -huh. I have to explain that my overall philosophy on freedom of speech looks an awful lot like uh, uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. I think Supreme Court jurisprudence includes some of our greatest minds, and including everyone from Oliver Wendell Holmes, Louis Brandeis, or two of, two of my all-time heroes, uh, Justice Robert Jackson. Um, we'll have I, an argument about Holmes. Uh, uh, well, I, I, I've got lots of complaints <laughs> about Holmes, too. Um, but the uh, And over a long time, trying to figure out how you have, have as much free speech um, in the real world. Now, at bottom, free speech is about you're allowed to have any viewpoint that you want. I agree um, with that. You have a right to be wrong. Yeah, you have a right to, a right to be wrong. And, and I take a more sort of like scientific kind of approach to it that it's uh, my, my overall philosophy is it's valuable to know what people think, not even if it's crazy, but especially if it's crazy. And we're kidding ourselves to think that we're better off not knowing the world as it actually is. But when it comes to things like kiddie porn or libel or threats or all this, so, so many things that people really object to, I'm like, they're already unprotected speech or they're already regulatable. So even like when, when you talk about um, there, we do allow for uh, zoning, erogenous zoning, as it's called, <laughs> about, about where we put strip clubs. So it, I don't agree with everything that, uh -huh. that's been decided by the Supreme Court, but when I go abroad, I'm usually explaining that actually a lot of these problems that you're talking about have been really well thought out um, uh -huh. in, in, the, in, the process of, uh, in the process of common law. 
But could I just try to bring this back to universities, though? Sure, because sure. there is a lot of, uh, of talk about free speech. On the left, people now think that free speech yes. is something that Nazis want. Free speech right. is something that the powerful just want. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, no, and people of, in, of power and privilege, uh, not recognizing that in general, people who are powerful and privileged don't need free speech rights <laughs> exactly. because they can always speak. But anyway. <laughs> in any society. As, but, but I think that as soon as you, uh, in, in trying to analyze what's going wrong on campuses, if you put it in terms of a free speech framework, I think that gets you into all kinds of morasses and arguments. I much prefer to really focus on the dynamics of an intellectual or academic discussion. And the key concept that I like to use over and over again is intimidation. To the extent that you're talking about ideas and you're not afraid, you're not afraid you're going to be destroyed socially sure. or punished, mm. well, then you can have an academic discussion. Mm. That's the sort of discussion that we must have on campus. And what, and of course, there are, you know, there's always norms of decorum. You, there, I'm not saying there was ever a time when people are completely free mm-hmm. from social sanction. But if you go back to, you know, Plato's Republic and, not the Republic, I'm sorry, the, the dialogues, they're mm. out there at the, you know, in the in a grove of olive trees just outside <laughs> town drinking and saying things that they could never say in the public right. square. Right. And that's what we need to do on campus. And that, I think, is what is missing. And so social media has made that harder. I think that young people, Generation Z, um, they are used to having most discussions online. They have certain norms, norms of showing off, norms of calling others out. Um, they bring those wherever they go. So they brought those to campus. And that means that there's now a lot of intimidation. It's not a question of free speech. It's a question that I, as a professor, can no longer teach the way I used to. I can no longer say what I'm thinking. Right. I can no longer be provocative. Right. Because if I say one word, literally one word, that someone objects to, mm. there's a sign in every bathroom at NYU that tells them where to report me <laughs> for having offended them. for having Because if, 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 if anyone considers it bias, there's a bias reporting system. Mm-hmm. So I am intimidated. I'm not going to lose my job, but a bureaucratic investigation can suck up months oh, of your life. Yeah. So I am intimidated. Students are intimidated. The key thing I don't think is free speech on college campuses. It's intimidation. Yeah, see, you know, I, I I'm entirely sympathetic with that because part of my argument has always been that the university predates modern enlightenment notions of free speech by a few, like six centuries or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the practice, the, the the principles which unfolded and improved over time is that truth is defense against any statement, mm-hmm. right? Yep. That uh, uh, an open-mindedness towards other people's idea, provocative ideas is is at, at minimum a requirement of sort of academic rigor and, and right. conversation. Mm-hmm. And those things I don't see necessarily as a purely free speech issue. Uh-huh. And so one of the things I think is sort of fascinating is uh, Charlie Cook, my colleague at, a, at at National Review, has been talking about this for a long time. The ACLU, mm-hmm. which used to be one of your chief allies and things, yep. is increasingly becoming – much more of, I know you guys issue social justice warrior, but their mantra is no longer free speech the way it once was. Well, they just came out against Kavanaugh, which is unprecedented. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the ACLU, it's not like they ever had a history of saying that accusers can be wrong <laughs> or that you need evidence. I mean, it's very strange to me where they're coming from on this. And it seems to me this is sort of evidence of the sort of religious mindset that comes in. Yep. At uh, A friend of mine at Reason told me a couple years ago that they were seeing more and more interns come in who, in interviews, would say they sided with the state against the wedding cake baker. Uh-huh. And if libertarianism becomes a sort of that, if that becomes the sort of way that libertarians think about state power, it's no longer libertarianism yeah. anymore either, right? Yep. But, they're, but those interns are a product of this generation that you're talking about. That's right. So this is something that I'm hearing when I, when I speak to business people. Um, anybody who's hiring members of Gen Z, again, most members of Gen Z are fine. But if you hire 20 interns, a few of them are going to bring these new norms in. Right. Um, and so 
uh, or just like one little example I heard recently, somebody told me that they were on a conference call. And after the conference call, somebody said, wow, she sounded like she was on Ritalin because the person was speaking very quickly. Well, the next thing she knows, she's been reported to HR uh-huh. because that's insensitive to people with mental illness. And so it's this, it's this call-out culture. It's this idea that I am looking for ways to report people. Right. And then I won't go talk to them. I won't try to settle this. I'm going to report them. Yeah. And, and one thing I want to be clear about is when it comes to freedom of speech, it's important to understand that you're talking about the, the, the basis for use of coercive power. And I, mm-hmm. I say this a million times, just because I believe in really broad parameters of freedom of speech and, and expression of opinion doesn't mean that I think there are equally effective ways to get at the truth, equally effective ways to argue. That would be silly. And, and so I spend a lot of time actually talking about teaching people to argue more effectively and to actually uh, get, get some stuff done as well. On the backdrop of yes, and you're not going to be arrested for having a having a heretical opinion. Yeah, so this is a big bugaboo of mine. One of the problems on the right that I'm trying to push back against is this obsession with ideological purity, which sort of took mm-hmm. over in a lot of quarters, creates an incentive structure and a permission structure to abandon any notion that one should try to persuade people who disagree with you. Yeah. Right? Oh God. Yeah. And instead, you <laughs> demonize people who fall short of your ideal. Um, rhinos are all heretics, you know, however defined. So I just have a funny story about this. Um, it's been very, we've, we've done dozens of, of interviews on this and every so often you, you do that one radio show that only knows the title of the book <laughs> and it's been sort of cute. Uh, hearing how if it's a more left-leaning host, they're they're really angry about coddling in the title. But if it's a more right-leaning host, and I had a whole conversation about this where they're saying it's like the good intentions in it. They're kind of like, well, well, well these well the, the, these are evil people. The, right, the, right, these right. liberals are evil, and, and they're not. They're, and I, the only way I could explain it was saying, generally, I don't think people gather together and say, in the name of evil, follow me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in cartoons, they do. Yeah. <laughs> in cartoons, they do. Co- Corporate Commander. Evil. <laughs> well, but I'll tell you, you know, Captain Planet, which was a cartoon put up by Ted Turner. The most boring cartoon ever. Terrible cartoon because it was essentially a Soviet agitprop the way it did it. But it was also one frame every second. It, but the, the, <laughs> there was that. Although, no, the, the original Marvel Comics cartoons from the early 1970s. Oh, I love those. Where though. they just had Thor's hammer kind of moving and everything else was a still panel. That yeah. was one frame per second. They were but um, in the, in the um, Captain Planet cartoons... The villains, their goal literally was, if we can just hide this poisonous nuclear waste under every playground in America, we will <laughs> probably, you know, <clears throat> and generations of kids are taught to see things like environmentalism as this sort of good versus evil sort of understanding of things. But I did want to say one story. I, I have a friend who's big in sort of uh, financial world in, in New York, and he tells me more and more you hear stories about kids coming in for job interviews and asking when they get the offer saying, would it be okay if I called my dad and get it, you know, and they're like, sure, but we're rescinding the offer right now, you know, that kind of thing. And apparently it is more of a thing with Asian kids who's the the culture that they're coming from. The Mm -hmm. parents are supposed to be grooming their kid, you know, as a sort of representative of the family along, but it's happening with non-Asian, non-immigrant families too, where this idea that you're the helicopter mom is now following you to Wall Street. That's right. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's, you know, lots of great phrases. One is the job of a parent is to work him or herself out of a job. Right. And we kind of forgot that back in the back in the 90s. You know, one place where you wouldn't run into this problem is at ZipRecruiter. So I think we all can agree that hiring snowflakes that want to bring their parents to the job is not smart. You know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. 
Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web, web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo, ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Right, so, John, I, I have a strange question for you. All right. I love okay. strange questions. So, right ahead. leave aside what we've been taught to believe what neoconservatism is, right? The, 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 and partly as a response to the Iraq war. It became popularized as this idea that neoconservatism was primarily, if not solely, a foreign policy philosophy among sort of certain invidious actors on the far left and the in the sort of paleo right. It became synonymous with you know bagel snarfing warmongers, right? <laughs> Put all that aside. My argument, which dog I, whistle, <laughs> my argument, which I've made several times on this podcast with other sort of types like Matt Cottonetti, is that you know neoconservatism, first of all only became foreign policy oriented in the 70s with Gene Kirkpatrick. They were very late to it. The original neocons were people like Irving Kristol, Daniel Bell, Matt Glazer, and they came to uh, James Q. Wilson, right? Uh, as, as William F. Buckley argued that what they introduced to conservatism was the language of sociology. Hmm. Um, because until then, conservatism was much more dominated by what Buckley called the, the language of Aristotelianism, from first principles on down, right? And then the neocons come in, many of whom stayed even socialists and certainly liberals or progressives for a long time after this process started, and they were data-driven. And one of the things they discovered was that a lot of the arguments that traditionalists and conservatives had made for years actually were borne out by the data. You know, and a big chunk of it was a response to the the overreach of the great society and, and the sort of technocratic hubris that came with it. And, you know, I remember Irving Kristol saying that it turns out that social science is proving that most of the stuff your grandmother told you was true. I know that you're still on your ideological journey and you consider yourself <laughs> some sort of progressive liberal, classical liberal, something in there. But, you know, your book is full of quotes and defenses of ancient wisdom that mm -hmm. pass on through a Hayekian process of trial and error that that is in form remarkably neoconservative. Hmm. And it doesn't mean that you want to invade Iraq mm -hmm. when I say this. But so, <laughs> but you do, don't you? What? What? Yeah. Am I wrong about this? Yeah. Well, so okay. So this is this is really interesting. I don't know a lot about neoconservatives, and part of the reason I haven't bothered to learn a lot is because as a psychologist, I'm interested in the psychological underpinnings of partisanship. And there are there are really three or four really distinct psychological types. I don't think neocon is one of them. So there is a there is a kind of a cluster of psychology that that represents progressivism. You can recognize it uh, you know through the centuries and you know the, the, the sort of the left there's like the left wing romanticism. Um, and then there are the social conservatives and you know from from Edmund Burke through, say, you know, George H.W. Bush, mm. you know, wouldn't be prudent. Right. Um, so those are really clear psychological types. And if you go back to debates in ancient Rome or China, you see some people arguing in each of those, you know, in, in each of those about, you know, change, progress. No, no, no. The wisdom of the ancestors. And then libertarians are a very distinct psychological type also. And I have a 
paper on this with huge amounts of data on libertarian psychology, and they're sort of just low on emotionality. And then the fourth type, which we haven't been talking much about, is the authoritarian, which is not the same as the conservative at all. Mm -hmm. um, so those four, and so I, I draw on Karen Stenner here, the political scientist. So those four are, I think, the psychological bases. Now, I think what's happened with neocons is they're not a distinct psychological type, but they are perhaps people who were persuaded by certain kinds of arguments to leave their home base and form some new movement. Mm -hmm. If you're suggesting that I might be one of those, I don't know enough to say yes. What I can say is that my temperament, my personality, my background, I was overdetermined over to be a standard stereotypical progressive. And it was literally doing the research for the righteous mind, literally reading conservatives as I would read, you know, ethnographies of other cultures um, that, that got me to see, wow, you really do need to look at things from multiple perspectives. There's wisdom here. There's wisdom in, among the libertarians. So I consider myself not to be on any team now. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I do think that one of the two major parties has lost its mind and has, has forfeited its soul with its recent actions. Um, I'll leave it to listeners to decide which one they yeah, think yeah. that is. Um, but um, you're not going to get a lot of pushback from me. Like, <laughs> okay. Yeah, but you know, so I don't. I, what, I, am I a neocon? I don't know. What, no. So, but my, yeah. So I, I, my point is, is that I've always argued that neoconservatism, rightly understood, if you go back and read the public interest, if you look at what James Q. Wilson did, right, mm -hmm. is that these were people who wanted progressive ends often, mm -hmm. and realized that progressive means didn't get you there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'd be interesting to do a different conversation about these four psychological camps because there were lots of socialists who were actually very hidebound and tradition-minded and conservative in their personal lives and their understanding of the roles of women. I mean, hmm. and so the 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 I mean, Andy Ferguson recently did a great piece about the the bourgeois misogyny of hippies at like Haight Ashbury, no. um, and. Um, and so I, I'm always – historically, it wasn't until Righteous Mind that I started to change my mind on the overuse of the psychologization of political categories because mm -hmm. I think like the Adorno's authoritarian personality was that garbage. Was, no, that's right. That was badly done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very – and he had people like Herb McCloskey and others who would say – that conservatism was a mental disease. Yeah, that's right. They swept up. They, that's right. They swept up standards. What what Stenner calls status quo conservatives. They swept those up into the authoritarian bucket, and that was not fair. It was not psychologically correct. I, I do have a question. Once again, for John, I, I wonder because it, the um, it's so determinative where you like what region you come from and the population density about what your politics will be like. Mm -hmm. And then I also hear all the, a lot about sort of personality traits, heritability, really, right? Really correlating. But as it becomes more determinative where you grow up. Do you think that might actually start to uh, separate a little bit? More well, people the, think know, of themselves as conservatives because even though they might have a li liberal temperament naturally, but because they come from a place where conservative means good and liberal means evil. Well, it's it's not that growing up in a rural area causes you to become conservative, at least not as much as, you, as your genes do. So the genes are almost always the biggest single cause in a free society. Now, if you have a free society, the kid who's born with a very progressive temperament grows up in a rural area is going to take move every chance he's going to move to San Francisco. That's right. Um, so, yeah, we're still working all this out, but I've never seen anything to suggest that the genes are not the biggest single determinant of your adult politics. But so, but if that's the case, and this is just a informational question, if that's the case, why would you have such concentration of liberal attitudes in big cities? If the, the gene pool... Mm remains constant whether you are um, living in a high-density place or a rural place, why would you then get 90% of people who live in New York City to all be liberal? I mean, are, are, is it that if you have liberal genes, you're 
you're, you're like no, you're a right. salmon going upstream and no, have to, right. I have to make it to Manhattan. You're right. It can't possibly be that much of a sort. So no, you're, you're right. Perhaps I overspoke by saying it is the largest, but it is of, of your, it is the largest determinant of your personality. Now the link between personality sure. and voting is, is, is another link. And so there's slippage there. Obviously there are huge social influences. We all care an enormous amount about prestige, about getting the respect of others. Uh, and so we are all influenced in, in a, in a concentrated or you know, politically orthodox area. We are all influenced by that too. Well, and definitely, you know, my, my major cities are Washington, D.C., New York City, and um, uh, uh, San Francisco and Philadelphia. And the only one that, one that doesn't have a high turnover rate, um, where people actually, large numbers of people who were born there live there, was, was Philadelphia. Right. And meanwhile, kind of San Francisco is a huge, nobody's from there that you meet. Um, you know, certainly where I lived in Brooklyn, it was pretty, it was kind of the same way. But I definitely noticed that in Philadelphia, it was, it was more of a conservative culture than I was used to in these cities where there is high turnover rate, which would go a little bit to the, the, the theory that basically everybody is self-sorting uh, really aggressively yeah. to these. And towns. also, there are not that many places that are 90-10. I mean, mm. most of these landslide counties are like 60-40. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. That's 90-10. That's closer than 90-10. <laughs> yeah. um, but also, I mean, again, I mean, so we've seen in the last, and I have my own theories about why this has happened, but we've seen in the last 25, 30 years trends that I think Trump has accelerated, but it predate him in lots of ways, of the white working class leaving the FDR coalition and joining the Republican coalition. The positions involved, I mean, we're seeing some warping of what counts as conservatism now, mm -hmm. but for the most part, on a whole host of issues, those people are becoming conservative if they had a genetic predisposition to be New Deal Democrats, and now they're becoming modern GOP Republicans. There have to be other forces at work. I have my theories about what some of them might be, but what would be yours? Um, well, the, the parties are not um, – so the parties represent the only two options that, that people have. And to the extent that the Democratic Party used to represent the working person uh, and gradually has become the party of the coastal elites, and this is the same sort of thing that's happening to labor in the UK and to many other parties. So a lot of what's going on here is about globalization and the way that globalization has shifted. The left-right dimension, as I was studying it when I started out on this, the left-right dimension that we studied in the 20th century that goes back to original uh, economic split um, is changing. And I, you know, the, I've suggested, as drawing on uh, Michael Lind and others, that the the, the best terms now are nationalist versus globalist. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that these these white working class people you're talking about, maybe they're not necessarily conservative, but they are drawn more to nationalism than to globalism. Yeah, well, that's a subject for another podcast. I know you guys got to get out of here. I did ask one question, which you both dodged. What? Um, we did? Uh, well, I don't mean it in a pejorative way. <laughs> uh, uh, like, not like draft dodging. <laughs> how, how, how do we fix this, right? I get asked this all the time and I don't, other than sending power down the most local level possible, uh -huh. teaching people to have a certain amount of gratitude for what the good things in our culture, I don't have a lot of policy programs. Do you have a policy agenda that well, I mean, the first thing we say in our in our section on solutions is this is preliminary, um, and we want as many suggestions as possible. You know, there are some fixes that are surprisingly small. Um, I, I think that uh, you know, at, at colleges, we're, we're, people are throwing up their hands, and I basically hear conservatives saying, "We're just giving up on higher education." And I'm like, "Have we even tried having, say, 
orientations that explain things about, you know, good discourse, getting to the truth, the right. special atmosphere it is. And very uh, virtually no yeah. uh, colleges do. So there's really – before we completely give up, there's some really almost minor things that we should at least try. So we, we, we've become fans of the gap year uh, idea, for example. Yeah. Okay. Actually, uh, that was a bit of a mealy-mouthed answer. Oh, it's all <laughs> preliminary. It's little things. Like, oh, we can be a lot stronger than that. Oh, what? Okay. Here's what you do. Uh, break it up into we got to change child rearing so that we give kids uh, the time to learn how to be independent before they go to college. And uh, we've got to uh, help leaders at universities structure things so that norms are clear, norms for engagement are clear. So a couple of things you can do if you're listening to this podcast, um, call your state legislator and ask him or her to introduce a version of Utah's free-range parenting bill. It's absolutely vital that people not be afraid that they will be arrested or investigated if they let their kids play in the park. Secondly, go to letgrow.org. If you have kids, go to letgrow.org. Look at that site. Uh, bring that site or, or ideas from that site to the principal or teachers at your kid's school. Um, these are problems that are hard, hard to solve as an individual because there are no other kids out there playing. But um, uh, there are all kinds of reports at Let Grow of communities that did it, and it's thrilling what happens. Mm-hmm. So we can really get a handle on the childhood thing. You have to also regulate social media access, things like that. But there's a lot we can do to, to have stronger, more resilient kids showing up at college. Once they get to college, if, uh, if, you, if you are in any way, if you've ever given a dollar to uh, your university, call up the development officer and say you're not going to give any more money until they either pass the Chicago principles on free speech or in some other way show that they are trying to create an environment um, in which uh, there is the free exchange of ideas without intimidation. Um, so we have all kinds of ideas for clear leadership, um, for how to change incentives, and especially orientation on campus. So I think we actually have some pretty substantive uh, uh, solutions in our, in our last de- couple It chapters. depends on how pessimistic I feel. Like uh, Definitely at the end of some conversation, I'm like, God, it's so, it's so tough. But at the same time, yeah, we do, we do suggest a lot of stuff. But we do open it up by saying, like, give us more material here. Sure. I mean, yeah. this all presumes that the bulge in the demographic bulge in the snake of uh, sort of snowflake Jacobins doesn't destroy <laughs> everything before the kids you're talking about raising can make things normal again, right? But um, anyway, I want to thank you both for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having and me. Thanks, Jenna. Get out of here, otherwise I would keep going. Thank you. The most important person in the whole wide world is you, and you hardly even know you. All right, so uh, John and Greg have left the building. Actually, they haven't. Actually, that's true. They're having a lunch upstairs. Uh, but they've left the studio. And uh, Jack, what'd you make of the... Uh, uh, the denigrating of all people your age and younger. Well, technically, I missed out on the triggering because they were talking about Gen Z people, which, by most definitions, I'm not one of them. Only narrowly, but I. So I'm. I'm not. I. I think. I think I get to escape their broad stereotyping, uh, or broad generalizing. Excuse me. Well, lots of people get to escape broad generalizing. That's <laughs> why we call it broad generalizing. But also, I mean, as we were saying off mic. You also went to Hillsdale, which doesn't have the same sort of snowflake philosophy as other places do. Yeah, Hillsdale is uh, it's a unique place. It's not, I mean, would that you could actually get a good sense of what young people across the country were actually like by uh, knowing, uh, as I do many Hillsdale people, but I, I, I don't think I'm being pessimistic when I say that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, no, I mean, they're outliers. I mean, th- th- first of all, the student body is disproportionately homeschooled. I mean, it's not a oh, majority, yeah. but it's like 11, 12 percent or 9 percent. I don't know the like numbers, that. but I met more homeschoolers there than I had anywhere else or any at any point prior to my going there. Yeah, that was one of the fascinating things for me is to find out the incredible, from the students I met there, 
the crazy diversity of different forms of homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, in Washington, you kind of think it's all one type or something. <laughs> and then it turns out that, like, there are a lot of different models for how you homeschool. Some of them are much more like sort of schools without walls that, you know, are sort of associational. And others are just like mom at the kitchen table all day with the kid teaching every subject and everything in between. Yeah, and then there's uh, Ben Sass's Spartan model. That's right. What does he do? Uh, doesn't he, like, throw his children out into the wild and make them, and if they come back alive, then they move on to the next lesson? Um, that'd be kind of awesome if that's the case. Um, um, that was my understanding. Yeah, so I meant to ask them about Kavanaugh, um, and it's probably a problem that I didn't, because uh, in the elevator when I was handing them off, they came, they were they were much more, um, I don't want to mischaracterize, but they, they weren't on the same page that I was um, about some of this stuff. But... Um, I highly recommend for listeners who are interested, uh, last week, uh, the editor's podcast, the commentary podcast, which is a great little niche podcast if you've never heard of it, and uh, the McCarthy Report all did really interesting conversations about um, the Kavanaugh stuff right in response to the hearing. And I, I said this on Twitter the other day, it does seem to me to be a really fascinating new, you know, we talk about how social media and the internet is terrible for everything and all the rest. And I think there are a lot of downsides for it, but it will be an interesting tool for historians one day for lots of people to get a sort of a, a not the Twitter reaction, which is, of course, stupid, but a more considered, thoughtful conversation about these things in real time. And I thought it was just sort of an interesting thing to think about that, you know, historians will start footnoting citations to various podcasts on the left and the right. I mean, it's not an ideological point. Anyway, we've studiously avoid getting too deep in the weeds and all of that. Uh, and I guess at some point we're going to have to, if if for no other reason that we're going to have to have Ilya Shapiro back on, because uh, I've won my bet with him, right? Well... Wasn't the bet, I'm pretty sure the bet, and you can get the audio, but I'm pretty sure the bet was that there won't be, the new Supreme Court justice won't be seated when the new session starts. We'll see if that's what you said. That's yeah. not what I remember. What, what did you remember? I thought it was just that he would be kept off entirely. No, I don't think that's right. I'm pretty sure it was because we didn't we didn't know it was Kavanaugh at the time, did we? He ran us through a whole bunch of different people it could be. Um, this was like right on the news of Kennedy stepping down. This was not on the news of him being of Kavanaugh being appointed. And I just basically the reason why I haven't talked about it on Twitter or elsewhere is I didn't want to win the bet, <laughs> but um, and I didn't want to be seen as like rooting for winning the bet, but I'm pretty sure I bet Ilya Shapiro a bottle of decent liquor that uh, come October, uh, there would be no replacement for Kennedy seated yet. If I'm wrong about that, we'll, we'll find out, and maybe we'll even cut this entire conversation so I don't have to uh, eat my words. But um... Here, everyone, there's no need to speculate because <laughs> it's, we're going to play the audio right now. Okay, so just, I want to be on record. Uh, I think that you're wrong about not knowing, you, I mean, you can, I could be absolutely 100% right on the logic, on the facts, and all the rest, but I still suspect that the Democrats are going to lose their friggin' minds and figure out a way to drag out this process. I don't know if it's going to be uh, Kamala Harris setting fire to herself like a, buddhist monk in in vietnam war or what but there's going to be something that 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 tries to monkey wrench this in the senate i don't know what well, it of is course of course they're going to try 
Uh, I'm not aware of any, you know, procedural uh, hurdles. They're certainly going to make a, a media firestorm and and all the rest of it. But uh, uh, so, I mean, are you, you know, should we make a, a gentleman's bet on this about whether? Uh, so you think? Be- so you think they're the, for absolutely 100% sure that the the next justice, the Kennedy's replacement, will be on the court before the midterms? Uh, yes. For the start of the new Supreme Court term. Okay. I will. I have no idea how. This is purely a gut instinct, and you may be 100% right that it's literally impossible for the Democrats to prevent it, but I still feel like the Democrats will prevent it. And, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, but, uh, what should we bet? A, a, a reasonably priced bottle of liquor, um, of the other's choice. Sounds good. All right. So look, I think. What I ultimately agreed to is not till after the midterms. I think what Ilya does there is says yes, when he says yes before the beginning of the new term, and that's when I agree to make the, the, the bet. But I understand that there is ambiguity here. So I think what we'll do is after this podcast comes out, we'll do a poll about how this bet should be interpreted. Um, and keep in mind, I did not bring up this bet during all of this conversation about Kavanaugh for the last, you know, six weeks, precisely because I wanted to lose it and I didn't want it to seem like I was rooting against Kavanaugh getting on the court. But we will, we will, we will consult the wisdom of crowds, particularly the wisdom of the finest podcast listeners in America who are the listeners of the Remnant Podcast. And if they want to say that this bet goes for applies to the beginning of the Supreme Court term or until after the midterms, I will defer to their judgment and neither Ilya can, uh, and, and we can have Ilya back on to make his case if he really disagrees with the Vox Populi and thinks that the letter of the law is on his side and yada, 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 just like all sort of, you know, soulless lawyers who can't see their own reflections in the mirror and <laughs> automatic doors don't open for when they go to like the quickie mart. Um, uh, he can make his case, but I will, I will defer to the judgment of, of the listeners. And maybe we can, I don't know if we can put it up on jonahgoldberg.com or we have to do it on Twitter. Um, but we can let people, people re-listen to the town and make their own decision about what this bet was. And if they say midterms, then I will, uh, buy Ilya the, the reasonable bottle of his choice and, We'll see if he lives up to his uh, obligations going the other way, if the people go the other way. Do you think that's a fair way to do it? Yeah, I, I just think it's fascinating that and fitting that there's there's a level of, of interpretation mat- uh, required in this matter. I agree. It's, <laughs> I did not, I, and it shows you the weirdness of memory, because I was sure that I remembered this as, I, all I remembered was the beginning of the Supreme Court term. And all, uh, from the email I got from Ilya, all he remembered was, you know, the beginning of, uh, after the midterms, which are like the opposite of, uh, of what was, you know, our positions on the thing. So we'll see, we'll see. And, um, there's something else I wanted to say about this, but now I can't remember. Uh, see, it's another, memory is a fickle thing. It's another weird thing about memory. And, uh, so we'll put it up and. Uh, let listeners decide, and I will defer to their their wisdom. Anything else that we need to be uh, discussing at this moment? Oh, yeah, so a couple things. One, 
Uh, I'm going to be out at University of Santa Barbara this coming Sunday. I believe it's October 7. Mm-hmm. Uh, giving a talk out there. I normally don't like implore listeners to come to these things, either you want to or you don't. But uh, it turns out I'm somewhat obliged to promote this more than I have. And also, they're actually charging for tickets, which I know is a bigger ask. But it also would be a really good thing for me to, to, to fill the room going forward. So if you can make it, if you're in the area, uh, you can find a link to all the details uh, at jonahgoldberg.com. But if you can make it, I would really appreciate it. I think there's going to be a book signing. And uh, I promise I'll do something special to make it worth your while. And then also, so the, the, the suits asked me to read this. We are currently conducting a survey of NR podcast listeners and would greatly appreciate your feedback. To take this survey, please go to podcasts.nationalreview.com slash survey2018 or go to our podcast Twitter page at NR Podcasts where the link will also be available. We'll also put a link in the show notes. And basically, I, I don't know what the questions are, but obviously all of the answers should be more beneficial to me than to say the editor's podcast. But, you know, I don't want to prejudge this. But if, if that's not the case, then I'll cry. And other than that, uh, at Jonah Remnant on Twitter and Jonah, uh, Remnant Pod. What is it? The Remnant Pod at gmail.com. The Remnant Pod at gmail.com. Please keep the reviews at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all those places coming. Uh, I, I, I routinely post the most recent ones on Twitter. Uh, they're great for me. They're great for the podcast. And also, uh, I want to thank Jack and everybody who's listening. This is our one-year anniversary podcast, mm-hmm. which seems really weird to me because on my desk still is the legal pad that I brought to the first recording of this podcast where I had my notes that I wanted to talk about. And basically, all it says is, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that has not changed yeah. uh, in the past year. And... Uh, um, and according to that random guy on Twitter, you're still as mean to me as you've ever been. Yeah, well, that was the other thing. Wasn't that a strange thing? Like, so there's some Twitter guy who says that right-wingers are always mean to their, their subordinates and their underlings, while left-wingers are, are loving and wonderful to, the, to theirs, which is wholly contradicted by my experience, my experience in Washington. I wouldn't say wholly. There have been a lot of jackass right-wingers to their staff, um, but I know too many stories about jackass left-wingers to their staff. I don't think it really cuts too much along ideological lines. but Yeah, and there's also the fact that the mere fact that people know who I am, despite not really having any reason to be on here, would suggest that you're being kind to me just by letting me speak on a microphone on your podcast. I think that's right. And you would not have your own podcast. Right. The Young, the young Americans, were it not for the spectacular success of of this podcast. Yeah. So, I don't know. Whatever. People people on Twitter say strange things. Breaking news. All right. So, um, I'm just trying to verbally procrastinate here because I don't want to do all the other work that I've got to do. But, uh, anyway, uh, thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.